Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Boker Tov, um, we are at the very, 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 very end of the second chapter of Shmot and the very, very end of the third Aliyah of Shmot. Um, and we're going to linger today on two words, which I think we, we read, I think we actually read the verse last week. Um, and um, we're going to, we kind of anticipated what Rashi might say about the words. And then we're also going to look at some of the other people on the page, because this is one of the few phrases that we see in the Torah where every single commentator, at least on, on, on the page in our books, in this book has something to say on it, right? Many times we have a lot of commentators have something to say, but very rare does every commentator have something to say. So the verse is chapter two, verse 25, Vayar Elohim et B'nei Yisrael Vayeda Elohim. We talked about this as another one of these wonderful verses where there's no hard vocabulary, right? Uh, a, a rudimentary knowledge of Hebrew tells us what each word means. Vayar Elohim, God saw, et B'nei Yisrael, the children of Israel, Vayeda Elohim, and God knew. Right. So in terms of rendering it into simple English, it's not that hard, but figuring out what we're trying to learn from the verse is harder. OK, um, before we jump into the Rashi, anybody want to raise or re-raise some of the questions that we uh, brought up when we read this verse last time? What, what are some of the potential holes or problems or curiosities about those, sorry, about those words? Anyone? Um, just the basic things. What does Vayar and what does Vayeda mean? Uh, to see somebody can have so many implications and know what, what do those two things mean? Good. Specifically with respect to a God, right? So um, the Torah has plenty of anthropomorphisms, but what sort of seeing are we supposed to imagine in our mind when this God figure beholds, takes in the Israelites and what's, and whatever going on with that seeing, what is the difference between divine seeing and divine knowing, especially since we know from our study of the Torah that whatever Yud Dalet Ayin means in Hebrew, it's different than the English K-N-O-W and it's different, different when it comes to God's doing it. Good. Uh, Rick and then Barry. Uh, hi, just, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, hi, just to underline the the structure of the trope, it's a very short sentence. The first clause is God sees the children of Israel. That's the midpoint. And then the second clause is just the, the two words there. Um, and it's Elohim in both. You, you could have written this sentence a hundred different ways. You don't need to say the subject twice, but it's like there's two separate actions. There's two separate periods of time. Um, maybe with the trope the way they are. That's all. Good. Right. And and uh, this happens sometimes where you have the fulcrum of the verse, the etnachta, so close to the end of the verse that the second half, the predicate of the verse, musically, is two words. Sometimes it's one word. We've seen that too, where there's an etnachta, and then the next trope is a sof pasuk. Na 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 yeah. It's frequent, but it happens. This is a very short verse where you've got to you've got to the Atnachta, and then the second half of the verse is just a quick Vayeda Elohim. And but, and there's so many things you could say about what did God know in just two words. It's it's like it's it's too short. It, it, it's too short. Good. 
Barry and then Dan and Larry? Well, uh, uh, knowing our Jewish history, I'm, I'm totally affronted by God, uh, having told Abraham that we're going to be going down to Egypt and he will bring us out. And, but he didn't say, I, I, God, will fall asleep and forget you guys. And, and at some point, I'll maybe wake up and see you again. What do you mean? What, what do you mean he saw us and now he, he knows us? What, he, he didn't know us all this time and I'm, I'm the present God? What is this about? I, I, I'm angry. Good. So it's a doubling down on some of the questions we asked in the previous verses was when we're told that God is hearing their groans, does that suggest that God wasn't hearing their groans before? And how, we're, how are we supposed to understand that, that the, the centuries of indifference or not listening or not seeing or not knowing? So by being told that God listened and saw and knew, we have to um, take in the fact that up until now, our omniscient and omnipotent God did not see or hear or know. Yeah, and, and it, it goes with all, all the his, terrible histories we, we've been through, our people. God, God doesn't know us? Yeah, good. Um, Larry, Diane, Marshall, and then we'll look at um, uh, the, the Rashi. Bernie, we are on the second chapter of Shemot, verse 25, the last verse of, of the second chapter of Shemot Exodus. It's also the last verse of the third Aliyah of Parsha Shemot. Go ahead, Larry, Diane. I have a very simple comment, and it's a stage direction. This line is, enter God. Because up to this point, as I've mentioned before, God has not been in at all in chapter 2, and in the entire book of Shemot, he appears only briefly when he when he favors the uh, the nursemaids. So this is basically telling me we're, we're going to interpret it in many interesting ways, but the main point is God appears for the first time in this Good. scene. Right, and we're, and we're in the second verse of that reappearance of God because we've had we talked before about these couplets of four that God Vayishma, Vayiskor, Vayar, and Vayeda. I, I forgot who who made this wonderful connection that that God has four ver, verb responses to the four synonyms for which that are describing the Israelites crying out. And up until this point, as Larry's pointed out, God might be present in the world, but God is not present in the story. Israelites have been suffering alone. Marshall. Um, in the, what we, as we call it, the New Jewish Publication Society translation, which we have in our Humash, it is God looked upon the Israelites and God took notice of them. And in the 1917, I guess, version of the JPS Tanakh, and God saw the children of Israel and God took cognizance of them. Mm-hmm. So here you have the word them. Uh, first, we have Israelites first, and it says, well, let's not repeat that word. Let's just say it's really them. So maybe if following up on Rick's comment, maybe it's, the, the verse really was, Vayar Elohim et B'nai Yisrael, Vayeda Elohim et B'nai Yisrael, that the et is a indicator of a direct object. So this is who we, first he saw them, and then he took cognizance of them. Good. Right. And, and that, that way of translating it re-raises the question of, is, ought there, is there an implied object of the verb vayeda? Or is it, a, is, is it a use of knowledge of knowing that doesn't require a thing that is known, right? Is it, is it a general awareness? Or is that the God knew it? God knew them? It, it ends without being 
um, completed. The verb is not completed. And maybe that's okay in Hebrew, right? Uh, and even in English too, right? Um, blah, 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 blah. And he knew. He knew. Right? Like we, 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 we can say that in English too. And we know what that word means. The question is, what does it mean here? Elon and then Rebecca. So it occurs to me, given this line and the previous couple of lines, that um, this is a problem that uh, we as parents run into frequently, which is um, God only pays attention to the children of Israel when they are crying out. So what lesson do the children of Israel get from this? And and as we go further into the story, uh, we begin to say, why, this is a whiny, kvetchy group of people. Well, actually, the lesson is that the only way to get God's attention is to be whiny and kvetchy, because it, it was only with the outcry that God paid attention. Yeah, great, great, Elon. Rebecca, Leonard? So in the verse before where um, God remembers and acknowledges <clears throat> Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so now in this verse, it's bringing it back to the children of Israel. So he's acknowledging them. It, it's about them. So it's back to recognizing and acknowledging them. Good. Right. And I, I think you're right that the, that the simplest or most obvious implied direct object of Vayeda is them. And, it, and, and yet it remains interesting that it's left, um, it's left unspecified. Uh, Rebecca, since your microphone is, is on, why don't you uh, pick up the, the, the mic, as it were, and read the Rashi on Vayeda Elohim. We'll see how Rashi, and then we'll compare it to some others. Vayeda Elohim. Natan Alehem Lev Velo Ha'elim Enav. He gave upon them his heart. He set his heart upon them and did not conceal his eyes. Right. Uh, do you have a word after Enav, Mehem? No. Ah, interesting. So there's different versions of Rashi. Uh, my version of Rashi has the word Mehem after Enav. Okay. So what's Rashi done here? And, and when, 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 Rashi, when Rashi answers seemingly simply, it's usually an indication that we're missing something, right? So the question I want us to think about is, what's Rashi's answer? And then Therefore, what's his question? What's his question, which we can only figure out once we get his answer? So you've translated it. Let's put it out there for everybody. What, what, what do we think is going on in the Rashi? The verb, it, the, the, the words are in God, Vayeda, new. Rashi's answer is God placed upon them God's heart, right? Interesting to figure out what we think Rashi meant by those words, and did not conceal God's eyes from them. What's his answer and what's his question? Who's the object of Yeda, like you uh, uh, had said? Okay, so he definitely resolves that that the, what, what, whatever knowing is going on, it's knowing regarding them, because um, twice in Rashi's answer, he has the them, alehem mehem, the, uh, upon them and, and from them. What else might be operating in this Rashi comment? Rick? Um. Have we ever seen the phrase um, hiding his eyes before in Rashi or anywhere else? Halim, that verb? That, that, that's a new one, isn't it? Um, it depends on what you mean. I, I, I don't know comprehensively whether or not he's used that root up until now in the Torah, but it's not a particularly, it's not uh, an obscure root. It, just, it simply no. means to, to conceal or to hide. 
but but I don't I don't remember seeing that image anywhere of God hiding His eyes in in the in the, the prayer book or anywhere. Um, we don't say don't hide your eyes to Him um, in a prayer, right? I, I don't unless I'm missing. I, I just thought it was a weird phrase. Yeah, um, a weird image of God. Uh, we don't usually think of God doing that, covering His eyes. Um, that's weird. Right. Well, so. I think what you're what you're kind of boring into is by Rashi describing that one of the things that Vayede Elohim means is that God did not hide God's eyes from them. It suggests that God could hide God's eyes from them. God has hidden, as Barry said, God's eyes from them. So yeah. this Vayeda is an as a non-hiding, suggesting yeah. that there has been a hiding, right? Suggesting that God can do this, right? Yeah, God but, can do ah, la 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 la, I don't hear. But it's right. a negative way of describing what he could do or not, right? right. It's, it, it's a it's a negative anyway. Right, and it and and it. Remember, we talked about the different ways we can think just philosophically about to know something and to remember something, right? There's right. you can remember something that you had forgotten, and you can remember something by recalling something, not that you had forgotten the data point; it just wasn't in your mind, right? Now we're describing a God whose knowledge is it's not. It's not God knowing something that God hadn't known. It's not God knowing something that God had forgotten. It's God paying attention, right? Rashi seems to be translating the, the, the knowledge of Yediah, of knowledge, as simply paying attention. Not like God read a book and learned something that God hadn't known, as it were. But a, a God type of knowing is simply a God paying attention. And a God not, I know that I'm being redundant intentionally, not not paying attention. That's what it means to know. And that's an interesting thing to think about as a way of, of representing the concept of knowledge. Uh, I think the order was Norm, then Barry, Diane Larry, then Rebecca. Norm Green. I think it might be a sort of an anthropomorphism by Rashi. Most of us do not have the experience of walking by slaves, but all of us have the experience of seeing homeless people and schnorrers. And most of us know how to ignore them if we want to. You know, sometimes I'll talk to them and say, I'm sorry, I have no change, or sometimes I'll give them some change. But I also know many people, if not, if not all of us, know how to and occasionally do walk by totally ignoring them. Great. We're vaguely aware of them, and God seems to have ignored the plight of the Israelites for quite a while, and now he is going to deal with us. Norm, that is an, an, an utterly relevant and a sadly relevant way of, uh, of describing what I think Rashi is saying about God's knowing here. I think that's exactly right. We, we are very good at this, of, of this type of not knowing we want to be, right? And we're also aware what happens when we choose to know. I gave a sermon at some point on the way after my sabbatical um, about my relationship with the homeless in Oxford, um, it was a very different sort of relationship than I have with the homeless that are in our neighborhood and around Temple Beth Am. Um, and I made a, like a sweeping generalization, which is mostly true, not entirely true because no generalizations are true. And that is a lot of the people who we encounter in and around Beth Am um, are not only homeless, but um, seem to be emotionally and psychologically diminished, right? Which does not mean they have any less Selim Elohim, but it's, it, it, it's a lot harder to, to engage with and it's a lot easier to not know. I, I don't know why this is the case um, 
uh, socioeconomically, but the town of Oxford in England is filled with hundreds of homeless people who are um, well-read and erudite and do not seem to be psychologically disturbed, who my assessment is they, 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 they just fell through one too big of a hole in the social safety net and they found themselves on the street, um, but not because they're suffering from some comprehensive uh, psychological or emotional uh, breakdown, which means that it's harder to not know them because, because when you walk by them, you realize that if they were wearing a different shirt, you could sit down and have a great conversation with them about Shakespeare or the economy or whatever. And so my family ended up um, spending a lot of time um, and um, in conversations with them and trying to help and you know, giving food and sometimes giving jackets and sweaters. Um, and I was like aware of my own system um, going back to the type of knowing another person that we probably um, should be, we should be in that mode as often as we can, but sometimes it's, it's, it's overwhelming when there's so many people around you who are in so much need, right? So it's not that I knew something I hadn't known before. It's just that I allowed myself to pay more attention. So that's a very helpful comment, Norm. And I think that's exactly, I don't know, Rashi didn't have homeless in mind, but I think that's exactly what Rashi had in mind when he describes what this Valleda is. God didn't walk by, right? God didn't ignore and by the way, going back to Rick's comment, it's, it's a connection I just made right now. So, so Norm, thank you for helping me understand something that uh, Rick was saying. In halacha, the verb ayin lamed mem, lahalim, means to not be to 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 um to not be aware of a transgression, to not be aware that you were doing something wrong. And there's a whole series of conversations in Masechet Shabbat about if you if you make the same violation of Shabbat in a certain number of hours on a single Shabbat, but you didn't know the first time that you were making the mistake, either because you didn't know that you were doing it or you didn't know that it was wrong. And then you do it again. And then you find out, is that considered one or two transgressions, right? In the, in the, in the sacrificial system. And that moment of not knowing is called a helem, same root. It, it's, you weren't aware of it. You weren't, you weren't paying attention to the fact that you were doing something prohibited. So that's actually how that verb is used in halachic and Talmudic language, to not have been aware of something you ought to have been aware of. Um, okay, Barry, uh, and then I forgot the order, Lara, Diane, and Rebecca, and then Renee. You're still mute, Barry. Uh, going back to the uh, affront, sense of affrontery and anger, um, historical um, so God was cognizant of our forebears and was with us and, and then went out to lunch. Uh, where were we told or cautioned, uh, talking about Helam, where, where were we cautioned that God's going to go out to lunch and forget about us? I don't remember that. Yeah. Except that God does tell us uh, in the incident with Avraham that we sometimes forget about that the um, that we were destined to be um, slaves and oppressed in Egypt, or that was that was foretold. So, but 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 but, but God didn't say I'm I'm going to forget about you people. That's true. So what what is it that in in God's God's history that God will go out to lunch from us, but not let us know that's going to happen? Well, that is um, you know one of the, one of the classic theological questions in Judaism and beyond. This notion of hester panim, 
right? God's hidden face. What are we supposed to do during bleak moments of history that last years or decades when it seems that if our understanding of God is a presence of beneficence and good, if it's absent, how are we supposed to relate to this absence, right? There's a, there's a lot of literature specifically around the Purim story regarding that because God is literally absent from the story and there seems to be um, a godlessness pervading that whole narrative. Larry, Diane? So, so you kind of just said what, what I was thinking about, which is what does it mean to have, believe in a God who seems like capriciously sometimes is just absent. Um, suppose, suppose the sentence was, was actually the opposite and God didn't notice that the Israelites were suffering and so he didn't do anything. Right. And, and it seems to me in the face of he did something, we could equally say, well, sometimes he chooses not to do something. And what, is, what kind of morality, what kind of moral God is that? And what does that mean for us as humans what are we supposed to do with information? Right. Especially, wonderful comment, especially on, we're on the precipice of seeing God's great power. We're also seeing on the precipice of God seeing, great, God seeing God's great power, but through another strange morality conversation about why God has to in, uh, put out so much suffering upon the Egyptians to accomplish something that it would seem that God could do without all of that. So, we are being reintroduced, like the, the God of, of Breshit, right, is the, is the creator of the universe and the founder of a, of a faith family. But now we're being intro introduced to God as an operator in history, right? Um, we, that's not happening in, in, in Breshit. God is an operator in a family and telling Avraham where to go. Um, and, we're, and we see hints of the complexity in the relationship between uh, God and Abraham when it comes to the Stoma and Amorah. But now we're seeing God as an operator in history, and we're not sure what to make of it. Because you're right, by, by, by the Torah's saying that God saw and, and remembered, and by Rashi's explaining it this way, we have to fill our minds with the idea, as we said before, that it meant that up until now God hadn't been doing that. And therefore God chose, either chose not to, right, or... Um, or was was um, impotent regarding doing so. And it's well, and, not easy to and, figure it out. So also, well, in the face of what you just said, where God is about to demonstrate this great power, and yet, as the story progresses, the people still don't quite believe that, that he's got this power. Right, right. Can I, can I push back against uh, Norm and in, in your interp uh, interpretation here? Absolutely. So first of all, I forget what it's called, the, the bold words, which Rashi didn't actually write, which tells us which words he's talking about. But here it says, V'yeda Elohim. And I'm wondering if the editor got that wrong. And in fact, that Rashi was actually talking about V'yara Interesting. Here, over here. But be that as it may, even though Rashi seems to be very accepting of the anthropomorphism of the sentence and answers the anthropomorphism, Anthropomorphism with more anthropomorphism, which really bothers me, but that's a different story. The English translation of the Rashi that I'm seeing here of Veloha Elim Enav is he did not hide his eyes from them. You and Norm are talking about he didn't look away, he saw them. But not hiding your eyes from someone is very different when you when 
you're embarrassed that you're seeing something and you turn away because you don't want them to see that you saw them. Mm-hmm. But here, God wants, at least according to my interpretation here, God wants the people to know that he sees them. Mm. I see you. It's not that he sees them in the sense that we're looking at the homeless. It's a question of, do we want the homeless to know that we're actually looking at them? And that's a, it's, it's, a diff- it's very different, I think, than what you and Norm are talking about. Because it has to do with our communicating something to them. Not our actions to them, but our communicating something directly to them. Meaning you're reading the the, the, the Lohelim Enav as not just being God's choice or God's turning or not turning to see them, but somehow conveying that to the Israelites? Yeah. I, I, I just happened to be watching something on elliptical this morning, um, Queen's Gambit, in the very early episodes where the main character, Beth, sees two people in the library, but she sees them making out, and she turns away. She's not turning away because she didn't want to see it. She turns away because she didn't want them to see that she saw them. Uh-huh. And that's a very different thing than just seeing it and not paying any attention. Yeah. Yeah, I have to noodle on that a little bit. That, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a a real subtle, different, su- a subtly different understanding of what it means to conceal one's eyes from someone or something. And I have to think about which one I now think Rashi was intending. But I, pre- <laughs> I appreciate that, that, that subtlety. Um, I think Rebecca was next. I'm not going to remember, but I'm just going to, going to call Rebecca. Um, I just wanted to add another angle to, to Lalim Enav. And that is that if you look at the reflexive form of the verb, mm-hmm. Good. it's specifically me in, at least in modern Hebrew, it means ignore and nothing more or less, just very simply, um, to ignore. Cor- correct. And, um, uh, Rabbi uh, Daniel Hartman, who's the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, ha- um, ha- has a phenomenal lecture that he's given several different times in several different ways on the verse. Um, I think it's in, in, in Dvarim, Lo uh, Titalem, that one of our religious obligations, particularly when it comes to um, seeing a ox or an animal that has gone astray from a neighbor, is to not avert one's eyes, right? The, the, and, and he goes into this idea that there's a there's a profound way of understanding a religious obligation. You cannot choose not to see what you see if you're going to be a Torah person. You cannot you cannot walk by the person on the street and see them and choose not to see them. You can't control what you do and do not see, but you cannot be the type of person who elects not to see if you see. That's lehit alem, right? To to make yourself willfully blind and. And it's interesting, here God is, um, let me say this the right way, here God is doing, is modeling, not doing that by seeing, by not turning away. But up until now, as, as Barry has um, expressed very uh, poignantly, that's exactly what God has been doing, unless we want to posit a God who literally didn't see. But we don't want to posit a God who literally didn't see, because that doesn't make any sense. So God right now is caught <laughs> by 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 finally seeing God is caught red-handed for having not seen up until now. Um, let's see, uh, Renee, Rick, Tova, Barry. I guess I'm confused about the fact that there's almost like a dichotomy between the fact that God is unaware, but yet he's supposed to be omniscient. Um, omniscient? 
Yeah. So how can he be both? Right. Well, I think that's the very thing that we're, we're, we're playing with. If we, first of all, the Torah never explained the notion of God's omniscience and God's omnipotence is in, inferred by the tradition. It doesn't say explicitly in the Torah that God knows everything and that God is all powerful. We, we infer that um, from our reading of text in Midrash. Right. So it, the Torah and his behaviors. Say, yeah. But the Torah could say it's in its own defense. I never claimed that God was omniscient or omnipotent. Right. The Torah doesn't say that explicitly. But I think that th- these are one of the, this is one of the places in our core story where we are, we have testimony that gives us an indication about how we're supposed to understand that very uh, ability or lack thereof of God. Right. Um, you know, in, in, uh, in, in, in some religious traditions, particularly in some uh, Christian religious traditions, the notion of God as infallible is considered sacrosanct. But our Torah presents a God that is rather fallible and changes one's mind and regrets and makes mistakes. So the Torah itself is not a clean and clear record of a God who always knows, who always can, and who's always right. Um, who did I say was next? Tova? Tova, Rick, Barry. I think the others were actually ahead of me. But, <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I'm, I think what we're talking about is not so much that God has not known or has not seen, but rather the knowing and seeing that he's now expressing is a knowing and seeing that's going to lead to action. Mm. It's going to lead to him doing something. So it's not that he hasn't known, but for, despite that knowing, or maybe even because of that knowing, previously it has not been a kind of knowing and seeing that's going to lead him to do something. And Sorry, go ahead. It's, no, go ahead, because that, yeah, <laughs> I'll stop I'll tell you why that comment is, is specifically interesting, um, but it requires me to tell a short story, but um, <laughs> I'll, 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 uh, Rick and Barry, I'll get back to you. Um, when I was in yeshiva in the mid-90s, I spent a semester at Yeshivat HaMiftar uh, in Efrat. I had a semester of credit to play with a college. And um, I, don't know if, I don't know how many of you know this about me. I did not, I grew up with a very, very kind of rich Jewish education, but it was not a day school education. It was camp, it was trips to Israel, it was USY. Um, and I knew the Hebrew language pretty well, but I'd never studied this material. I didn't have a day school education. So I spent a semester um, away from college at Yeshivat HaMiftar. And that's the yeshiva that was founded by Rabbi Chaim Bravender and Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, who himself was the founder of the town of Efrat. And Rabbi Riskin would come to the Beit Midrash uh, once a week. He didn't teach a regular class there, but he'd kind of have like a, a Parsha schmooze and an open Q&A. And he, and he was great. I, I have a very soft spot in my heart for Rabbi Shlomo. And um, I remember at one point, someone was, was asking him a question about parts of the, of the tefillah that are hard to say because they go against certain principles or values, right? And this was happening in an orthodox setting. They were, but someone was asking the question, like, what do you do when you get to a place in the Sidur where you feel like you can't say it? Doesn't, this person did not want to say, um, I, I don't want to, I can't bless God for not making me a woman. That, that seems to be a, um, a misogynist thing to say. And it was ra- raising other, um, other challenges. Uh, he also raised the challenge, how do I say, which is at the end of Birkat Amazon. It's a, it's a verse from the, from the Tanakh. I was young and I have gotten older. I've never seen 
a righteous person abandoned and in need. That sounds like a lie. I see righteous people abandoned need all the time. Rabbi Riskin had a, had, a, had a general and a specific answer. The general answer is, you know, as an Orthodox rabbi, he says tradition has to come first, right? That, that your first obligation, and you have to do this many, 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 many times before you can get past it, is to see is there a way of reinterpreting the words that you're confronted with in such a way that make them more palatable. Because if we, if we willy-nilly, and I happen to agree with him on this, if we willy-nilly um, change or excise every line in the inherited tradition that doesn't seem right to us right now, then go look at a Sidor in 50 years and see how much of it is recognizable. There is a certain weight of the inherited tradition that, that has to be rather loud in your conception. And then he gave a specific example. And this is where what you're, you're kind of reminding me of. He says, I have never seen a righteous person abandoned and... Um, he says, there's a comment, commentary of Rashi somewhere in the book of Esther. I forgot which verse it's on. On the verb ot, ra'ah, which is our verb right here, which is the verb you were commenting on, where Rashi says that one of the ways you can understand the verb ot is specifically to see and not to act. I forgot, again, where in Esther it is. But ot means to see and not act. And if you plug that meaning into the verse, it means something quite, quite different. I have been young and now I'm old. I never saw a righteous person in need and didn't do anything about it. I never only saw and didn't act. And he says, now the line you had a problem with, student, goes from being a lie to being a challenge. You challenge yourself to be able to say that line and always mean it because you will have never passed by at Sadiq Nezav and only seen with your eyes and not done something about it. I, I loved his methodology and I love that specific answer. Um, and putting that, uh, and I'd forgotten about that as we were looking at this verb and putting that into this line based on your comment, we are indeed about to see a, a God who's seeing and who's knowing is leading to action, mm-hmm. even though apparently there's a use of the verb wrote, which specifically means to see and not act. Um, but but uh, but God, but God is about to, and God is going to act obviously through Moshe as we um, finish this little interlude that we've been in for a few verses. Okay, um, Barry, Rick, Rosemary, and then we're going to uh, look at some of the others on the page. Uh, just a, uh, maybe it's redundant comment. Now, the uh, uh, God's knowing at this point uh, it, it is not yet knowing to us, not yet making God's acquaintance to us uh, that knowing doesn't happen until uh, communication to Moshe and, and later uh, to state God's name uh, to Moshe, who God is. Uh, at, at this point, it's, it, this is God's story. Uh, God is now waking up. It, it's almost yeah. like beginning to bray sheet. Uh, before bray sheet, there's yod heh but uh, Elohim hasn't created yet. So uh, this, is, this is God's beginning to create. Great. Thank you, Barry. Rick, and then Rosemary. Okay. Um, getting back to the four, um, just real quick. Verse 24, the, the verb is God hears, and then there's a thing. There's the nakatam. Then the second one, by his core, he remembers, and then there's the thing, the brito. And then it specifies Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay. The third one in verse 25, God sees... And then the thing, the object, is at B'nai Israel, right? And then the fourth one, God knows, and there's no thing. 
unless you go to the next word, which is Moses. So not to read ahead, but um, you could connect things that way. And I like the trope of the Revia, da, 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 da. God comes down from way up there to Moses. That's going to be the thing that God knows about and um, the interaction there. How do you like that? I like it a lot. <laughs> uh, Rosemary. Rosemary, where are you? We don't hear you yet. Don't, you. We have, don't we have the prediction that God told before that we will go to Israel for 400 years and then they will come back to the, to the uh, country. So um, the thing is for 400, it's like you say to a person, I'm going to leave my house in two months and then you will come and occupy. And if he's coming every day, knocking at the door, finally, you're not going to open the door because you have told him in two months, I will give you. So God sent us to Egypt for 400 years. He knew we were there. He was listening, but it wasn't the time to act because the 400 years wasn't done. What was preparing during those 400 years? I don't know. Maybe it was the creation of Moses and many other things which was going to happen. But uh, I think he didn't see us because he didn't want to see. He said 400, not 200. Yeah. And there's a discussion similar to that that you might be consciously or unconsciously referring to in the Haggadah, where we talk about uh, the length of the Israelites' experience in Egypt being being connected to God's prophecy that they, they, they had to go down and God knew it was going to happen. And God even told Avram it was going to happen. And, and God could say back to Barry, yes, I did tell you, I didn't say that said those exact words, but I said to you that part of this journey is going to include an, an extended terrible stay marinating in the yuck of Egypt before you emerge out and meet me again at Sinai. Um, that raises even more problems, right? What, what does it mean for a benevolent God to intentionally and willfully send God's people into such deprivation on the way to enlightenment? And yet we all know that oftentimes enlightenment is preceded by, by suffering and by tremendous deprivation. Okay. Um, even though this is, you know, almost entirely a Rashi class, I, I want to spend a little bit of time on some of the other commentaries on the page. I know not everyone has the same text in front of them. So we're not going to overdo this um, because I know it's harder to follow along if you have it in front of you. If you have Safaria, by the way, you can open up Safaria. Most, if not all of these appear in Safaria. Um, just a little bit of a smattering. Top right on our page, Rasag, Rabbi Sajid Gaon. What does Vayeda Elohim means? He turns Vayeda to know into Vayachmo, Chemla, mercy. God had mercy upon them. Similar to Rashi, but not the same. It's not about a paying attention. It's, it's, it, it's not about new seeing, new knowledge, but God allowed God's mercies to be awakened with respect to the Israelite. Look at right underneath Rasag. This is the one I told you, like almost never appears in the Mikvot Gidolot. Reish Chet, Rabbeinu Chananel, who's a very, very early commentator, mostly known for his commentary on the, on, the, on the Talmud, but there are certain little snippets of his commentary on the Torah that occasionally appear. And Vayeda Elohim, Rabbeinu Chananel says, Richem Elohim, God had mercy, very similar to Sadja Gaon. And then he keeps going, Uferush, what does it mean that God had mercy? Vayar Elohim et Chuvat Bnei Yisrael. That he, he reads at the beginning of our verse not to mean that God, well, what did God see when God saw them? 
that God just looked down and saw them toiling? No, God saw, saw their tshuva, which is another way of responding to the question of why had God not responded until till now? Rabbi Nochanan was clearly troubled by the idea that nothing would have changed and all of a sudden God wakes up. Ah, they must have a role in it. What role do they have in it? Not just the crying out, but tshuva. They did repent, repentance. They were in Egypt for a reason, for some, some sinful part of the nation. They did tshuva. God saw the tshuva. Vayirachem Elohim. And God had mercy upon them, had maternal womb-like mercy, rachamim from recham, meaning womb, as a result of their tshuva. So God is responding not just to an accident of, of all of a sudden God's eyes being in, on Egypt, but God is responding to the, the change in, in, their, in their hearts. Okay, um, next one I want you to look at. Look at Ibn Ezra, um, which is uh, top left, right underneath Rashi. Vayar means shehayu hamitzrim osim begalui. God saw that which the Egyptians were doing openly, brazenly, that which was visible, that which everyone else could see too. And vayeda, what did God know? Ha'asui baseter. God also knew the things that were happening uh, out of sight, what was happening perhaps inside the Israelites' uh, hearts and minds. So Ibn Ezra divides those two uh, verbs so that the Vayeda is knowing something that only a God could know. Um, look at, um, look at Chizkuni, which is the fourth one down on the left. This is, um, Larry's favorite commentator. Uh, so fourth one down the left, second paragraph, three lines down. If you're in our book, Vayeda Elohim, God knew, what does it mean? Lashon Yadoa Teda Pnei Sonecha. This is very similar to the language from the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 23, which I think I have here to show with you. Hold on one second. I think I pulled it up. Yeah. Um, so uh, he's quoting from this verse in um, Proverbs. Yadoa teda pnei tzorecha. Look after very well um, the, the face or the presence of your flock. Shit libcha adarim. Pay attention to your herds, right? So we have in um, in this verse from Mishlei the yadarut, the knowledge root. We also have the heart, which is how Rashi understands it to mean. And Chizkuni says what we're dealing with in our verse is similar to what to the wisdom that the Book of Proverbs is telling uh, a shepherd. And what does it therefore mean in context? Um, Moses. What an interesting phrase. God prepared God's heart. It's like he, he cleaned off the schmutz that was stopping God from being empathic. God prepared God's own mercy to really know their pain, to know their suffering. Right? You have, you have to it's almost like in order to know someone's suffering, you have to want to know their suffering. You have to prepare your heart to be truly open to it, even and especially if you're God. Last one I want to point out to you um, is Sforno, Italian commentator, 16th century. Last one on the left, Vayeda Elohim. Yada nigeilvavam. It's interesting how the commentators are playing with hearts here. It's God's heart is referenced and their hearts. It, and I'm not sure exactly how Sforno is meaning nig-a. 
because anega means to touch. It can also mean an affliction. I think it means affliction here, but I'm not 100% certain. It's somehow God knew the deep affliction of their hearts, right? Like tsara'at, we, we translate that as leprosy, um, even though it doesn't mean that. It's called anega. It's a, an affliction. God knew the affliction of their hearts. V'shahaitat filatam, and that their prayer, v'tsahakatam, and their cries, becholev, of every heart of Israel. Kemosha siper acharka, as God explained later on, Ba'amro, when God said, Ki yadati machovav, for I really knew their pain. Okay, so these are all cousins of one another, but I thought it was interesting to point out how hard these, these medieval commentators are, try, are working to try to figure out what does this word mean? What does it mean vis-a-vis God? What does it mean in terms of our relationship with God? Um, because we are learning from this scene what to think about the God of our people, the God that we pray to, the God who is at the head of our, of our religious faith. What are we supposed to be gleaning from how God interacts with the world and what God knows and when God knows it from this scene? So it ends up being a really iconic moment, even though we're about to get to the moment that we think of as iconic, right? The burning, you ask people to talk about, you know, the couple of, first couple of chapters of, of Shemot, it's the burning bush that gets the attention, but it's the verses right in front of the burning bush that are more important fodder for theological considerations. Okay, uh, Diane Larry, and then we'll move forward. This is an intentional misreading of the text to be provocative. So you know how sometimes you can have words that, are, that, that talk about a group, but the term is singular, like people is a singular term. I want to read B'nai Yisrael as being a singular term. The children of Israel is singular, not plural. I also want to go back to what I said about God looked so that his look was understood. His, we saw his look. The people saw his look. So now I want to read this verse in a way nobody else seems to read it. And God looked upon the Israelites. God looked upon the Israelites. And the Israelites knew God. He looked at them. We saw his eyes and we said, God's there. That the, that the implied subject of Vayeda is B'nai Yisrael. The singular and the object, And the object is Elohim. Yeah. Publish it. <laughs> okay. Um, I think we've lingered long enough on Vayeda. We could linger longer, but I think we're going to move forward. So we are now at the beginning of the fourth Aliyah of Parshat Shmot the third chapter of the book of Exodus. And let's see, who have we not heard from today? Who we can, Joel, do you want to read verse, uh, you want to read that verse, Umoshe? Umoshe hayaro et tzon yitro chotno kohen midyan. Never miss an attribution. Vayinhag et hatzon achar hamidbar vayavo elhar ha'elohim choreva. Okay, translate. And Moshe was the shepherd of the sheep of Yitro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he drove the sheep um, uh, after the the uh, or through or the. Uh, it's it's, the, it's uh, hard to make sense of what that achar is. We'll go back to it, but but. You're right. Achar means after. Maybe this is a beyond. Maybe this is deep into. It's hard to know. Okay. Um, and he got to, he came to the Mount of 
Elohim um, at Chorev. Good. Okay. So that gives a, a good basic sense of the verse. I'm going to slow it down a little bit to try to raise some of the questions and then see if other people have other questions. So first of all, do we, is the word ro'eh here a verb or is it a adjectival noun? Is it that Moshe was the shepherd um, of, of the sheep or with the sheep or is hayaro'eh kind of a, 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 a version of like um, he, of an he ongoing past tense? He was shepherding, right? It's hard to know. Um, and once again, we have the et. Is the et a direct object? So that the tzon are the object of the ro'eh? Or is this a with? Even though we, we know basically what it means, but the structure is interesting. That belonged to Yitro, who, as you said, gets several attributions here. The father-in-law of Moshe and also the Kohen slash priest of Mijan. Vayin hag, nun he gimel. Like, not, like in modern Hebrew, a driver, a nahag, right? Um, um, a, a manhig is a leader. So he led, he drove, he was responsible for the tzon. Achar hamidbar, we know what midbar means, some kind of wilderness. We know what the word achar means, but we don't really know what it means here. I'll be interested to see what kind of translations people have in front of them. Vayavo, he came. El har Elohim, to the mountain of God. Choreva, the a in choreva is a built-in to, right? To chorev, like Mitzrayma means to Egypt. So the place is called Chorev, but this is to, instead of saying Lechorev, it was Choreva. Okay, so now that we've kind of slowed it down, let's um, let's raise some questions on the verse. And if anybody has an interesting translation in front of them, I don't have my Everett Fox with me uh, where I am right now. I'd love to hear um, specifically how some of the translations deal with Achar Hamidbar. I see Norm and Rachel's hand up. I just wanted to comment on the driving or the leading of the flock of sheep. Um, in general, in the West, we drive flocks, but in the Middle East and thereabouts, they generally lead their flocks. So a shepherd is very likely to have his staff and lead the flock through a gateway or wherever else they're being led, and the sheep will follow. And he may have to go back to get a straggler or something, but in general, the shepherd leads the sheep. Whereas if you go out to Riverside County where they raise sheep, you'll find that in general, the, the, the shepherd doesn't lead the sheep. He sort of follows around the outskirts of the back of where this flock of sheep is. So my guess is in the original it would have been led in Rashi's time in France. I don't know what they did. Uh, great. And that really helps understand why the verb by in hog is chosen here. Cause to be a no hag is to be out in front. Great. Uh, Sue, uh, Marshall, Larry, Diane. My translation says for the Ahar Midbar, it says to the farthest end of the wilderness, hmm. um, like the other side. Hmm. Interesting. Great. Who, which translation is that, is that JPS? It's, it's, you know, who is it? It's that, um, it's the, it's this one. It's the, that one, whatever that ah, one. It's the translation of the Torah in that translation of Rashi. Got it. Okay. I forgot who did that one. I did too. I can never figure it out actually. But I think Renee has a couple of people have it. It says Sharfman by by Rabbi Avram Ben Isaiah and Benjamin Sharfman. Rabbi Benjamin Sharfman. Torah says that Silberman says behind the desert, which is like an inscrutable phrase. What does what does it behind the desert mean? But it's it's a translator trying to make sense of what Achar is. 
uh, Marshall and Larry Diane. Of course, my favorite translator is Robert Alter. So here's a translation, and here's his note. And Moses was herding the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, comma, priest of Midian, comma, and he drove the flock into the wilderness and came to the mountain of God to Chorev. Hmm. And his comment, into the wilderness, the Hebrew preposition achar is odd because it usually means behind. The King James Version bizarrely translated this phrase as, quote, the backside of the desert. The claim there that here it means to the west is rather strained. Perhaps it may suggest something like deep into. Deep into, yeah. Uh, Sajigaon says something similar. Achar hamidbar vayavo, but he connects the, the, the description of whatever whatever part of the midbar achar means, and then you, and only after that do you get to the vayavo. Sajja says, this is top right in our book, to the edge of the wilderness, ad Shabbat el And it was not until he got to the edge of the wilderness that he came to this mountain. Uh, Larry, Diane? Just comparing with Sajja gone because uh, Arya Kaplan says, to the edge of the desert. Edge of the desert. And just to add to the, um, a common term for people who are tending sheep, are drovers, sheep or cattle, are drovers. Great, thank you. Uh, Barry, then Sue? Yeah, we've said it already. It's a matter of geology. And, uh, deserts are uh, uh, flat valleys uh, which come to the edge of mountains. So uh, he came to the edge of, uh, I guess it's Mount Sinai. And, uh, and, and that's where uh, grass will be, be found, like at the edge of the mountain, at the edge of the desert. Got it. Susan? I was going to say something uh, really similar to what Barry just said. We, I mean, we can all picture like the edge of the wilderness. If you're, if you're looking over, like Barry says, you know where, for the most part, it's not like the ocean. Well, maybe it is. I'm trying to picture where they are, but um, for the most part, it's not that there is no end. It goes all the way to the horizon and beyond. Like you usually can see some kind of geological structure at the other edge, the -hmm. other side of it. Like, you know, we could we, we could say at any old time, we could be in Arizona and be looking at a desert. And we know that those, you know, plateaus and mesas are way over there at the other side of the desert. After the desert, you have the whatever, the other edge. That That is not nonsensical in, in you know. It's part. not nonsensical. And maybe at the edge of the desert is where there's the foliage that can sustain your sheep. The question is, does, did, he, did he come from one edge? to the other edge. And if he was already at an edge where there was other foliage, why did he have to go all the way over there? Is he going there as Barry suggesting, cause that's where the food is. Is he going there because some internal compass is driving him to Har Elohim. And, and we're gonna get to Rebecca one second. And, and what does it mean if, or if already this mountain is called Har Elohim, right? Like we know, cause we know the story that, that, that this scene is going to take place in the same spot that we're going to get, get Torah later. But, but th- there's nothing inside the story yet that tells us why this mountain that he is either accidentally or pushed towards um, is called Harlohim. Rebecca? Um, I think I understand this sort of in the opposite way. Be- um, I remember learning in elementary school that Midbar in the Bible actually means the, uh, the, the area where you actually do take your flock, where the like a uh, free uh, pasture, because it's um, 
להדביר את הצאן במדבר. And so rather, the sentence is saying, he took the flock beyond the pasture to Chorev, which is in a more um, arid zone. So it's sort of the opposite of, of a desert. Right. So what Rebecca's bringing up is that the language permits you to read uh, this scene either to mean that Moshe was taking them exactly to the right place where there was more food for them to uh, eat or the exact opposite, that for some reason, rather than staying within the Midbar, where you normally take your, sh- your, your sheep to that, to that part of the wilderness, got, Moshe goes to a place that has nothing, having started from a place that has something. And we just don't know which one it is. Um, and Cecil B. DeMille didn't know either. Leonard, Rebecca, and I think on that we'll end. You're still muted, though. Okay. So, um, according to my dictionary over here, achar, which means <clears throat> after, behind, afterward, uh, originally was a noun, meaning the hinder part. So the that goes part. with, you know, out into the wilds of the desert. Yeah, yeah. And and maybe we'll end with this. If you look at Uncleus on this, Uncleus, this is another place where Uncleus does a little bit more than translation, but on the part where he's translating, v'dabar uh, yat'ana, this is interesting use of the root dalad bet resh in Aramaic, meaning to 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 lead or to push uh, his flock. Laatar shvar riya lamidbara, past the shafar means um, appropriate or good or, or 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 right past the the good pastures area of the desert. So Uncle seems to agree with Rebecca that where he's going is past the place where it's best for his sheep to pasture. He goes beyond the good pasture land, right? Um, uh, Marshall, you have in front of you, uh, I believe, a translation, a, a book that has the translation of the Uncleus. Is that right, Marshall? Can't hear you yet. Marshall? Marshall, if you could unmute for a second, because I don't hear you yet. Yes. Can you, can you read the translation of the Uncleus in your book, and then we'll, we'll end there? Yes. One second here. Uh, now Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the chief of Midian. He led the flock to a good grazing site. Oh, to a good place. Oh, La'atar Shvar. Got it. Okay. To the wilderness. And he came to the mountain upon which the glory of God, the glory of the Lord was revealed to Chorev. Okay, good. So Uncleus does two things here. I, 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 uh, I misread. Um, I was reading Atar in the Aramaic as a version of Achar, but Atar in Aramaic means site or, um, or place. Like a rabbi is called the, the, the Mara de Atra, right? The, the, the authority for the place. So he led them to the Atar, Shvar, a good place for pasture, not beyond it. And Uncleus in his translation deals with one of our questions on the verse, which is, in what way does this spot already earn the title of the, of the mountain of God? And we'll um, spend more time on that when we meet next week, including Rashi's um, explanation of the same idea. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.